Well, I am really excited uh, to dig into uh, our scriptures today. Uh, there are a lot of things that I enjoy the opportunity to preach out of, but none more than uh, the Gospels. Uh, there are many days, uh, even as a pastor, that I, I have doubts. Uh, I struggle uh, with, with the Christian worldview and making sense of it all. Uh, but when I turn to the Gospels and I turn to Jesus, I find my heart just lightened and I find the words of life. And uh, for me, uh, it, uh, my hope today uh, is that, uh, if you're li- that today would be a, a day where we re-encounter uh, this Jesus, this God-man uh, that stands above all of human history and makes a startling claim uh, to be Lord. And, uh, and so looking forward to uh, digging into that today. So uh, a few months ago, I, was, uh, I introduced my kids to paper, rock, scissors. And uh, we were having some pretty epic games uh, as they were figuring this out and, you know, what beats what and uh, how these things work together. And I was in a, a, a really intense showdown with my son, Josiah. And we were playing a best of games series or best of seven series, and we were tied three to three, and we were in the deciding match. And as it came paper, rock, scissors, I threw a curveball, and I threw the ultimate trump card. I played Jesus. And his eyes widened real big. And my, my daughter Sophie was there looking as well, and she was like, can you do that? And, and I was like, yeah, you can. And you know what? Jesus beats everything. <laughs> and, and so I won that game. I, I like, uh, you know, <laughs> taught those kids a lesson. Uh, uh, unfortunately, when they tried to take that to school and do that to kids at school, they weren't as willing to recognize the lordship of Christ in uh, paper, rock, scissors as we do at home. But uh, we can pray for them. But uh, one of the things that... It, I say in jest here, uh, but it's something that is, is really potent in, and powerful in our world is the ability to claim Jesus and the ability to say that he's on our side uh, is a very meaningful thing. It's kind of a trump card. I remember I uh, went to a Christian college and very regularly you would hear girls breaking up with guys telling them that God told them to do that. <laughs> And the guys are all like, well, he never told me, so what what does that mean? (laughs) But it's almost inarguable at times. Like when somebody says, God told me to do this, it it carries with it a a significant amount of weight. Because if God or Jesus is on your team, I mean, it means that whatever you're doing is right or acceptable. Which, sadly, is oftentimes not the case. When you look at the course of human history, don't go any further than studying the popes. And it's not to dog on the Catholic Church, but you you, you look at what has been done in every stream of Christianity in the name of Jesus, and some terrible things have been done in the name of Jesus. It's why I believe in the Ten Commandments, the only one that comes with a guarantee of punishment is to take the Lord's name in vain. And many of us, uh, myself included, grew up being taught that that was just saying, you know, carelessly saying, oh my God, or something like that uh, when you stubbed your toe. But that really misses out on the depth of what uh, God is trying to say there. 
God, the, the, probably the better translation of that is that do not carry or do not invoke the name of the Lord in vain. Do not use it to justify what you're doing, to say that what you're doing is God's doing in vain. And he says that you will be held accountable for that because there's power in it. There's power in using God. There's power in the name of Jesus when we invoke him for our side. And one of the things you look around today in our political climate, it's almost comical watching people that don't believe that Jesus ever existed invoking his name for, for purposes that certainly would have nothing to do with him, at least I would think. But you've got Republicans that do it, Democrats that do it, Independents that do it, Green Party that does it, Tea Party that does it. I mean, I, I have seen it all across the spectrum. People are trying to get Jesus on their side. Because again, if Jesus is on my side, then I can go do a lot of different things, whatever I want to do, and it's okay. And the, the problem is, is that when we do that, what we're doing is it's just like domesticating a majestic animal. We are ripping the soul of this man, this God-man, out of him by making him our servant. And the challenge is for us is that when we choose to make God our servant, when we choose to make Jesus a servant to our ends, the result is that we will always be unhappy. God is a good God and he is a king and he will not allow us to function under the illusion that he is our servant. But if we can figure out how to recognize Jesus as king, we will never cease to be amazed. I found that true over and over and over again in my life. When I am able to relinquish control and recognize him as the driver of the bus, as the Lord of the universe, and I'm able to step out of that role, it's just, it's amazing. I'm not saying that my life gets easy, but it's just, everything just seems to work and make sense. But when I step in, I just can't help but screw it up. But yet, we always want to make Jesus our genie. And when we do so, we demonstrate that we're no different than any other group of people out there. A lot of other people have high views of Jesus. They just don't recognize him as Lord. The demons recognize who Jesus is. They just don't recognize him as Lord. And so for us, my hope for all of us today is that we would make that shift. As we begin to step into the, this life of Jesus, we encounter this man um, that we might begin to actually see some areas where we have uh, created an idol, where we have actually created and made Jesus in our own image for our own purposes. And Jesus is saying, you got to get rid of that, but I want to be a part of your life. And so we're going to dig into some, some four stories today where we're going to see how Jesus uh, refuses to be bought into the political parties of his day and instead chooses to show that he is, in fact, Lord. So if you have your Bibles, uh, pull them out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and we will have some slides 
up behind me with, uh, with the, uh, the verses on it, but it's always good to get into your own Bibles if you can. Uh, the curriculum for this week uh, in small groups goes at the first 12 chapters of this, and so we're going to catch up right at the end of that. It's always a plug for small groups if you're going, well, I wanted to read about the stuff before that. Well, go join a small group, and you can go figure it out. Or you can just read it on your own, one of the two, but um, it's great to do that in a small group. But I wanted to give some context, because one of the easiest ways to abuse the teachings of Jesus is to take them out of context and attempt to apply them in a way that Jesus never would have thought about them. Because Jesus was a man, he was a God-man, lived in a particular time and place uh, with a group of people that had a bunch of assumptions about the way the world worked and what was right, what was wrong. And, and so we want to place him in his context as a first century Jewish man rather than painting him as the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Swedish Jesus that hangs on many of our walls. <laughs> so in between uh, where we encounter Jesus, the, the beginning of the New Testament, and the end of the Old Testament was about 400 years. There were 400 years, and during that time, there was prophetic silence, meaning that uh, God was not speaking revelatory information to the people of Israel for 400 years. Now, our Catholic brothers and sisters uh, believe that there are some works in which are inspired during that time, um, and you know, I'm not here to debate that, but I, I do believe God was moving, but he wasn't moving in the way that he had in the past or the way that he was going to in the future. And during that absence, uh, I think that the easiest way to understand it, and a, a scholar, I think, says it this way, a new religion began to form. And it was a religion that was based on the historic truth of the Jewish faith, based on the Torah, based on the, the scriptures, but it had become syncretized with the values of the day. And this is one of those truths that you don't have to believe it happened. You can, because I say so, you can believe it happened because we watch this happen. It happens all the time. The element of truth, the word of God, the pure word of God is spoken, but it's spoken to a time and a culture in which we choose to adopt and adapt beliefs as a part of it, and it creates something that's almost entirely different than, and unrecognizable from what it was before. We see this happen today in, in America, where we've taken the, the truth of the gospel and we've wed it with a prosperity, this belief that God wants us to all be happy, wealthy, and wise— I believe he wants us to be wise, but, uh, and we've come up with the prosperity gospel, that Jesus died so that you could be rich. Walk out and proclaim his promises over that Lamborghini in the church parking lot, and it will be yours. It's a syncretized religion. It's not biblical Christianity. It's, it's something that we have created as a culture uh, over time. And that's what Jesus was dealing with, was what they called Judaism, was this faith that had been kind of created, that had adopted many of the, the ideas and the, the, the practices of people around it, but it wasn't really like the authentic Hebrew faith that was of old. And so the major characters at this time uh, that were a part of this system, the first one that you've got to remember is Rome. It just towers over the, the pages of, of the New Testament because Rome was the superpower. They were the America of the first century. 
where everywhere you went, there was their fingerprints on it. And Rome, in their expansion and conquest of the world, had conquered the area of Israel, and they were now the rulers of Israel. And this was a, a very challenging situation for Israel. In the past, when Israel had misbehaved and broken their covenant, their commitment to God, uh, God had exiled them and used the Babylon, the empire of Babylon, to exile them and punish them, take them away from the promised land. But in this situation, it was a different type of exile and almost a more insulting type of exile because they were home, but they were not allowed to operate as if they owned it anymore. They were just landlords. They didn't own the place. And this was humiliating for them. You know, it's like the difference between being an owner and a tenant. It's like, can I do something different to the house? You go and you have to ask the landlord. And sometimes that's nice particularly when like the toilet's overflowing and you need to get a plumber out there. It's like, hey, I need some help. But when you're the landlord, guess who, or when you're the owner, you got to deal with it all. And so they're in this situation where they are seriously frustrated with Roman rule, and it's an oppressive rule. Now, there were a wide variety of different perspectives amongst the Jewish people on what to do about this. How do we deal with these Roman landlords that we do not want to have here? And some, among some of the people, you had people that just decided, well, they're here. I may as well profit off of it. And so they actually joined the Roman leadership. The Herodians that we'll hear a little bit about today. King Herod was a Jewish man who was operating at the behest of Rome. Rome had installed him. And people saw him as, as an infidel. He was betraying his people. He was profiting off of betraying his people. But he figured, well, why not? I mean, the issue is fighting back and dying. Or I can make a buck on it and set up my family for generations. If you want to study some fascinating stuff, Herod is one of the most unbelievable figures in human history. The most paranoid, fearful human being bought, it built so many things that we can still go see in Israel. Uh, fortress after fortress, he was so paranoid about Rome sacking him. And uh, he ended up, anyway, fascinating guy. But one of the other people that would do so that wasn't at that level of leadership were people that were just tax collectors. Now, taxes are a part of, I mean, death and taxes, right? They're part of every culture. But the, this was a little bit different because these were Jewish people collecting taxes from Jewish people to pay to their Roman landlords. It was seen as an incredible betrayal. And Rome paid their tax collectors by allowing them to skim off the top. So they'd go to a farmer, you owe 10 whatever, and the tax collector would say, make that 25. And he'd take that 15, and that's how he got paid. We, I, I've got a few friends who are IRS agents, and you know, every once in a while you just have that sense of like, are you here to take my money when you're around them? <laughs> but I don't dislike them most of the time. But here, you have these tax collectors that were despised. They had betrayed their people, and they were profiting off of it. They were hated. And it were a big part of this culture because Rome was taxing the Jews to the hilt. 
So then you step into the religious world uh, of the people, uh, of, the, of, of Jews. And there were pretty much four basic uh, camps that everybody fell into on what do we do with, with Rome? How do we handle this religiously? Spiritually, what do we do about it? And you had one group that's called the Sadducees. And the, the Sadducees, the easy way to remember them is that they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in a resurrection. So they're just going to die and uh, there's nothing after that. But the Sadducees uh, were some of the wealthiest people, and they believed in effectively just accommodating to Rome. Let's just accept that this is who they are. We're not going to fight back. Uh, we can adopt some of their and, and syncretize some of their beliefs into to our system. And, uh, and so we can live and, let, and just move on. They weren't going to fight back. And another group, at almost the exact opposite end of the spectrum, was the Zealots. And you'll see that one of the disciples is a zealot uh, in, in the camp. One of the disciples is a zealot. And he, they, the, the zealots believed that a Messiah was going to be coming and was going to be sent to Israel for a violent overthrow of Rome. And so they were preparing a military invasion. They were expecting a Messiah to be coming and riding in on a horse and getting ready to fight all these people. And it was a, there were a, lots of people that believed that. You have two others, the Essenes, of which John the Baptist was one. The Essenes uh, were a group of people that believed if we can just step back from society and practice our faith and not, uh, not engage with Rome, uh, that everything will be okay. It's the typical like head in the sand group, and we can just pretend like they don't occupy our streets or have power over us. And you can still go see the caves at Qumran and see where the Essenes lived and practiced and withdrew. And we have people that are like that today, the, the Quakers, the Anabaptists. Uh, there's this belief that if we can just withdraw and pull away from society, everything's going to be okay. We can avoid it and just let this ship pass. But the characters that we see Jesus engaging the most with and most uh, clearly in the, in the text, and we're going to hear about today, is Jesus' favorite pincushion, the Pharisees. And there's a lot of stuff about the Pharisees that's very annoying and, and challenging, but one of the things that, that's hard to make sense of is that in a family, it, it, they are probably the closest thing to a brother that we have. These are people that believed in a resurrection. They took the scriptures incredibly seriously. And the, the key thing to remember is that they actually believed that if they were to obey the law, if they could get enough people to obey the law, God would respond by coming back, fill the temple, and empower the people to overtake Rome and kick them out. So we have some people that are just rule followers, and you know, they're, a, they're a special breed who just like to follow rules. For the purpose of it, and I'm actually somewhat joking on that. They, they, they are, and they're great, and they're important. And there might have been some of those people with the Pharisees. That's the reputation that they have, for sure. But I actually think that at their core, you have a people that are just going, we want to be free. And when we see them engaging with people about not following the law, you've got to remember that a part of what they're thinking isn't just, I'm annoyed that you're not doing what I'm telling you to do. They're going, we want to be free of this landlord, and you, living this way, are keeping us in bondage. 
But the problem is, is just like we face today, all of these different groups are now faced with what do we do with this stranger that was born in Bethlehem and is walking around healing people and driving crowds from all over the countryside to come follow him. What are we going to do with him? And just like us today, the, the question is, is, does he align with us? Can we invoke his name for our projects? Is he going to be on our team for what we want to do? And the Pharisees are no different, and we're going to see them interacting specifically with Jesus today, trying to figure out if he is going to be a part of their project. And as we're going to see over and over again in these four pericopes, Jesus says, no, I'm not a part of your project. I'm part of my own, and you can get on board, but I'm not going to get on board with yours. So starting in chapter 2, verse 13, it says that he went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And what we see here are two absolutely remarkable things that Jesus does that really hacks off the Pharisees. The first thing that he does is he calls a tax collector. He's not sitting in a tax booth because it's a good seat in town. <laughs> he's sitting in a tax booth because he's there collecting taxes from people. This is a despised man. This is a man that, uh, by and large, would have been rejected and seen as someone who was uh, a part of keeping Israel in bondage. He was practicing in a way that was stealing from the people of Israel, but, he was, it, but in doing so, he was not fulfilling the law. He was not doing what the Pharisees were wanting them to do. And Jesus doesn't just interact with him, doesn't just pat him on the bat, back and move on. He actually invites him to follow him. And that's not a small thing. Oftentimes we pass by this and we, we don't realize what a staggering invitation that is. In, at the time, uh, all Jewish boys were brought up and, and memorized large portions of the Torah. Some of them memorized all of it and were, were educated in the, in the ways of God. And at some point, uh, some of them were actually chosen to go and follow a rabbi to be the disciple of a certain rabbi. Not everyone got to do this. And in fact, what we see with all of the disciples is that these were boys that didn't qualify. These were boys that no other rabbi in town wanted to come follow them. And now you have this suddenly popular, radical rabbi that's walking the Judean countryside, that crowds are following him, that the, the, even the Pharisees are following him in, in an odd way. And he calls an untouchable to come be a part of his crew. It's staggering. It's staggering. Think about what this means 
Look at the people that were, go study the, the, the group of disciples. But you had a zealot in this group along with a tax collector. You don't think that they experienced some conflict? You don't think that when Jesus talks in Matthew 18 about confronting a brother, go to his face if he's offended you, that he doesn't have in mind something to do with Levi? This Jesus is not going to play by our rules. He's not going to play by the rules who say that people that are on the, the wrong side of Torah adherence don't get to be a part of what Jesus is doing. And not only that, Jesus goes further. It's one thing to just be spending one-on-one -on -one time with, a, with one of these people, but Jesus is actually spending mealtime with them. He's partying with them. And the meal at this, this day was more than just a, a time where nourishment was had. It was actually a time that communicated acceptance. It communicated approval for the people that you were with. Something was going on in that. And, and this, when people begin to think about why Jesus was crucified, we're beginning to see why. He's hanging out with all these people that the, the, that the religious elite were saying, you can't do that. You, you, you cannot do that. Those are not the people that should be on your team. You're supposed to be on our team. And they're starting to get hacked off about it. And friends, we are living in a day where the, the questions come through social media all the time. And it, it's not necessarily about having meals. It's about going to weddings. It's about who are the people that we are willing to, to spend time around and Jesus was willing to spend time around people that people so much, so much so, that people thought he was adopting some of their practices. They thought he was a drunk. Jesus was willing to be misunderstood. They were, he was willing to have people question his theological perspectives because he is not going to be a part of your political party. All right? The teachings of Jesus have inherent political implications, but Jesus is never partisan. The minute that you begin seeing that God only hangs out, or Jesus only hangs out or would hang out with the people that you would hang out with and only thinks the way that you do is a surefire sign that you have an idol in your life and not the living God. Jesus rejects our tendency to decide who is in and out. And he reminds us that he is Lord over who is in and out. And this is challenging this is really challenging in our day and age where we, we really don't know. I, I mean, the, the complex issues that are out there, I mean, there, there are people that genuinely, I, I, I get nervous about if I'm going to meet with them what, and somebody bumped into me at a, at, at a Starbucks and saw me with them, the conversations that I would need to have after that to clean it up, and you just go, this is tough. But Jesus won't have any of that. It's not who he is. And if we are going to play uh, who's in and who's out, one of the things that on Judgment Day, we're going to wake up and realize that we're on the out, that he's going to be on the other side from us because he is constantly expanding the circle. He is constantly engaging with people that we would find uncomfortable. And I, the, the way that I oftentimes think of this is, uh, who, who would Jesus hang out with today? Well, I go to the limit of my my, uh, my comfort levels, and then I go another step. 
Jesus had no fear of spending time with the unlovable, with the hated, with the despised. And he was willing to deal with the consequences of being misunderstood. And I believe that fundamental to what uh, is going to be the, uh, the success of the church in the new age that we are in is our willingness to do the same. We need to love radically the way that Jesus loved. So we move on. And again, the Pharisees are wanting to dig into issues about whether or not Jesus is on their team or not. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one will put new on, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. So John the Baptist's disciples have joined with the Pharisees and were practicing fasting. And fasting is not enjoyable, but it's an, certainly an acceptable and uh, understandable part of religious practice. Now, fasting is almost exclusively done as a, to parallel and to demonstrate repentance. So I, I'm going to try to break down all of the, uh, or summarize all of like Old Testament sacrificial worship here in just like two minutes. So if I get it a little off, forgive me, but I, I should get the major points. But one of the major things in the Old Testament is the sacrificial system. And uh, people would come every year and offer a sacrifice. The priests would offer sacrifice on a regular basis on the altar and a very elaborate plan in which this was done. And many people today think that what was being done was to pay for your sin. You would offer a, an offering and, and, and it would pay for your sin and it points to Jesus. And it does point to Jesus, but the, it's an illusion. It doesn't actually pay for your sin. What the sacrifices served to do was to ensure that the presence of the Lord did not depart from the temple. Okay? So when things would go wrong and people would stop practicing and stop uh, doing these things, sin made Jesus or made, made God depart from the temple. And God's presence, like it is today, is everything. <laughs> if he's not here, we're just a social club. If the Israel doesn't have the presence of God, they're no different than any other nation. And they're in the, the most vulnerable spot in the, the Near Eastern world. They depend on him. And so fasting is a symbol of we have done something wrong, the presence has departed, and we want to actually retune our hearts and, and, and bring God back. If my people who are called by name will humble themselves, I will, it, that, that's what is going on here. And so the Pharisees, understandably, are fasting because they're wanting God to come back. They're wanting God to free them from the Roman rule. The problem is, is that walking right in front of them is God. God is there with them. They just can't see it. 
And this is one of the key issues that the Pharisees have, is that they simply cannot understand the season that they are in. They don't understand how God is at work, that in this moment something profound was happening and the age of the law was ending and the age of grace was beginning. We are in the age of grace. And someday that age of grace will end on the great and terrible day of judgment when we begin to be held accountable for our behavior. The Pharisees could not understand what was happening before them. And that is ultimately the problem when we tried to control, when we keep on trying to, to, to tame Jesus and bend his will to ours, is that we don't realize what it is that he's doing right in front of us. And we can miss him. We can miss him. Matthew, uh, in uh, chapter 11, says it like this, but what shall I compare this generation to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, after, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is on the move. He is up to something. He's playing a song. He's playing the flute, and they're pretending like they're at a funeral. And a part of the good news of the gospel is that we, we get to dance when Jesus is playing a flute, and we get to, to mourn when Jesus is playing a dirge. We will miss out on what God is doing if we keep on trying to pretend that he is on our team and invoking his name inappropriately. And we move on to probably one of the, the most controversial things at that time, which is around Sabbath keeping. It says in verse 23, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered into the house of God, and in the time of Abathar, the high priest, he and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So in the Ten Commandments, the Bible tells us to remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy, but gave zero stipulations for what that actually meant. Now, the challenge is, is that when you're attempting to get people to behave and do that, but they have no idea how to do that, they may not actually do what it is that the commandment is attempting to do. So the Pharisees and other religious leaders spent, just created, uh, fabricated hundreds of laws around what it looked like to keep the Sabbath. And it became this unbelievably burdensome task. This is just a few of them. Alfred uh, Edersheim compiled these in the life and times of uh, Jesus the Messiah. Uh, 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. And so I'm just going to give you a little glimpse here. From sundown on Friday to sundown, sundown on Saturday, you couldn't walk more than 1,999 steps or 3,000 feet. However, you could add another 3,000 feet or 1,999 steps if you measured out the distance by Friday and placed some food 1,999 steps away. 
Also, you can lay a piece of wood or a piece of rope when you come across a narrow road. And supposedly, that just negates all the work that you just did. So you, put a, you walk out to the, a road, you can walk over a piece of wood onto the other side, and it's like the 2,000 steps you just did didn't count. Right? Makes sense. I mean, it's just like how on the Sabbath for me, uh, all the calories that I eat don't count. So we all come up with our creative ways of, of doing things. Uh, you can lift something up and put it down, but only in certain places. You, can't, uh, you can pick it up in public. Uh, you, you can pick it up in public and set it down in private, um, but you cannot carry anything heavier than a dried fig. Uh, do you, anybody ever held a dried fig? I, I, I mean, I can't imagine it's very heavy. Um, but, uh, or you could carry two halves of a fig twice. All right, if you put an olive in your mouth and then spit it out, you could not put a whole fig in next time because your palate had done the work of tasting an entire olive. You could toss something from one hand to the other, but if you toss something and then caught it with the same hand, that was a sin because it was work. If a man reaches out for uh, some food and the sun sets precisely at the moment that his reach is at its zenith, then he has to drop the food and not completely retract his arm lest he carry a burden on the Sabbath. Tailors couldn't carry pins, scribe couldn't carry scrolls, students couldn't carry either of them. You could not examine your clothing. You might have found a small bug and killed it, thereby violating the Sabbath. You could not buy anything, you could not sell anything, you could not write a letter, you could not send a letter, uh, unless you had pre-written that letter and a heathen delivered it for you. (laughs) You could pour cold water onto hot water, but not hot water onto cold water, because that would be work and heating up the water. You could not boil an egg, not even by placing it in the hot sand that was already hot. You could not bathe. The water falling off you might inadvertently wash the floor. So you guys get the message. I, and I've got more that I could read, but we're running out of time. <laughs> these, these laws about Sabbath keeping had become unbelievably burdensome. And honestly, what it was like is, have you ever been around somebody that keeps you walking on eggshells? People keep you, to wa- keep you walking on eggshells, worried that you're going to do something that is going to offend them or get them upset in order to control you. They do it so that you have to focus all of your attention on keeping that one person happy and that they can control your behavior. And effectively, they were making God out to be this guy who wants to keep you walking on eggshells. And Jesus is like, I'm not having any of that. The Sabbath is not... For, to, to create this way that you can offend God. The Sabbath was made for man to rest. And this just sent the Pharisees over the edge. I'm not going to get to the last pericope, uh, but we see that it is actually these Sabbath-keeping issues that Jesus refuses to buy into uh, and be a part of these parties, these political parties, stances that get them for the first time, the religious leaders talking about crucifying him. It's, it's crazy stuff. But Connor, if you guys uh, want to come on up and uh, we can begin to bring our service and time to a close. But as we look at, at Jesus, as we look at this man, it is incredibly challenging uh, because at no point is he willing to let us use him for our own ends. 
He rejects every attempt by these, these people in the first century to use him towards their own ends. But that has not stopped us today from trying to do the same thing. It happens all the time. I do it. I, I mean, it's just a, a I, I do it. <laughs> How often do we begin to, to press into things and, and then justify what we're doing because God is leading me to do it? It is critical for us to remember that Jesus is Lord and he determines who gets in or out. He determines who should be sitting at our table and who should not. And these are things that are uncomfortable because in the heart of every human is this desire to tame God, to put him in a box. But Jesus will not have that. doesn't mean that he doesn't care about these things, but he is not going to be the arch supporter of your status quo. He is Lord. And that's why it's even important in the language of salvation, how we become saved. I, I will not pray with people, I'm inviting Jesus into my heart. It is, I'm submitting my life to yours because you are king. And that's the offer for you today. Maybe you decided at one point to uh, recognize Jesus as king and you need to come back again and, and do that. And maybe it's for the first time but the invitation is the same if we're willing to leave behind our need for control. Would you pray for me? Or pray for me, yes, but pray with me. <laughs> Jesus, uh, you make me so uncomfortable, and then at the end, you, you bring such incredible comfort. Uh, because even when I screw this up, and I see in this, you didn't give up on these people. You still came after them. You still pursued them. You still gave them opportunity after opportunity to, to turn to you, to recognize you for who you are. And we repent, Lord, of those idols today. We're sorry that we've politicized you. We're sorry that we've used you to rubber stamp doing what we want to do. And we want to reorient our lives to you being king. So we, we recognize you as king, Lord. You are king, Jesus we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.